Father, we're grateful that you have revealed yourself uh, to be the Alpha and the Omega, the the one who was, uh, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Jesus, we're grateful that you echoed those words, that because you existed uh, from eternity past in a loving, intimate relationship with your Father, that you indeed are also the one who was and who is and who is to come. You are, Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Spirit, we're grateful that you indeed are that because you are God and that together you are our God. You are our triune God who has existed from eternity past and yet in the perfect time you sent your son, Jesus Christ, uh, to come into our world, to reveal the Father to us, to live a life of perfect holiness when our lives are full of utter failure and sin. And Jesus, you perfectly obeyed the Father in every aspect of your life. Not only did you obey your Father in life, but you obeyed the Father in death. And in your death on the cross, for our sins, in our place, you took the holy wrath of your Father upon you so that we might be forgiven. So that we, upon your resurrection, in belief in it, faith in you, Jesus Christ, and you alone, that we can have life. That we can know what it is to be reconciled to God, full of life, born again, new creatures that have eternal life now and forever. And we're grateful, Jesus, that you have done that and that you are our loving God, our loving King, our Alpha and our Omega, the one who is and was and is to come. I pray now, Father, as we prepare uh, our hearts to give of our offerings and of our money, that we recognize that everything that is good is yours. And we recognize that you own everything and we simply return it into your hands to be used for your purposes in your church. Father, I pray also that your spirit would be among us. Give us hearts that are open to hear from your word. Uh, Father, be among us. Teach us. Correct us. Rebuke us. Encourage us from your word. Train us in righteousness by your Holy Spirit through the proclaimed word. And I ask, Spirit, that you would be with me, uh, that I might speak your word accurately and powerfully, and that you, uh, Jesus, might receive all the glory. And we ask it in your name. You guys may be seated at this point. Uh, Our guys are going to get our offering ready, and we're going to do that. And uh, for the rest of you, feel free as you're doing that to turn to the book of James. Uh, Afterwards, we're going to send our kids out, and we will be in James chapter 1. Thank you, Colleen. All right, kids, feel free to head on out to Kids Church if you've not done it already. I think Becky is going to be back there for you guys. And uh, for the rest of us, if you have your Bibles... Uh, always great thing to bring your Bible to church with you. Turn with me to the book of James. Uh, the book of James is a book in your New Testament towards the end of your, of your New Testament. It's uh, after the book of Hebrews. And so if you find the book of Hebrews, uh, the book of James should be uh, close at hand. Uh, this morning we're going to kind of continue in a series that we just started on the book of James uh, called How-Tos for the Christian Life. If you recall, the book of James is very hands-on. Uh, if you will, James takes us into the workshop of the Christian faith, and his desire is to give us some practical tools in our hands uh, for which to uh, live out our Christian faith. And so the book of James is all about uh, what does practical Christianity look like when we are born again, when we receive the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus, what should then be our life? What should our life 
then look like? Uh, last week we talked in uh, the first how-to that James did in chapter 1, how to tackle trials. And so last week, hopefully we got some tools that James uh, gave us to fill our tool belts with, if you will. And he taught us that we can tackle trials uh, with joy uh, because we know that God is working in the midst of those trials to, uh, to make us persevere and to mature us and to mature uh, believers and that we can have joy that God is working in our midst if we choose to do that and uh, that we can persevere in that. And so last week, James was talking about the issue of trials. Uh, this week, you'll see that our sermon title is How to Triumph Over Temptation. And so really what we get is that James continues, I believe, uh, to talk about the theme of trials. This uh, is connected to what he has talked about before. And so what we're going to see is that trials are inevitably linked with temptations. And so stick with me, and I think we'll see that. And so James, this week, uh, wants to continue to fill our tool belt, if you will, with tools. And this week, how to triumph over the temptations that we face as we go through trials. And so I want to begin by uh, asking you to consider this. Um, how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands or anything, but I want you to get a picture in your mind, uh, someone, maybe the Spirit will put in your mind, someone that you know, a believer in Christ, who has gone through a very difficult time in life. I think if we think through the people in our lives, or maybe our own life, we can think of that kind of a person. And I want you to think of a person, a believer, who has gone through a trial, who has tackled the trial in life, and has passed the test, has endured through that trial, has had joy in the midst of that trial, and has been matured and made more Christ-like. They are bitter, they are mad, they have gone through the trial with joy and hope, uh, not without tears, but with a sense of trusting in God. Do you have that person in mind? Can you think of that kind of of a believer who, when facing a trial, endures it with joy and they pass the test? I can think of several people in my mind's eye, several of people in this church, uh, that when I think about how James says to tackle trials, they do it well. And I look at those people and I say, I want to be like him. When I face a trial like they have faced, I want to be like them. Consequently, we have all, I think, come across believers who don't pass the test that trials bring. We uh, can think in our mind, maybe of ourselves or other people, of believers when they face trials, when they face uh, the inevitable problems that come up in life, they don't respond that way. Can you think of someone in your mind, maybe yourself, who has not responded well? They end up facing a trial and they don't persevere. They seek to run from it instead of enduring. They end up bitter. They end up living a life of negativity. They're negative towards everyone. They're pessimistic. Sometimes they even lose their faith. They stop going to church. They stop praying. They stop reading their Bible. And they end up living a life of bitterness, angry with God, angry that God allowed such a thing to come into your life. Can you picture a person like that in your mind? I think we all can. And all of us probably to some degree have been in that camp before. And so the question that I think inevitably should come to our mind that I think James is going to address is this question. What's the difference? What is the difference between person A and person B? Or maybe to put the question in another light, what causes person B to go that route? Why is it that they do that? I think James is going to answer that question for us. This week, what James is essentially going to say is he's going to say that as a believer in Jesus Christ faces trials, 
We can go one of two ways. We can go the route of person A that passes the test, that has joy in the midst of it, that sees it as an opportunity for growth. Or you can be like person B. You can fail the test and the test, the trial, if you will, can become a temptation. Because what James is going to say that every trial that we face is actually a temptation. Every trial that we face, whether the big kind of trials or the small kind of trials in our life, it's a temptation for us to become bitter. It's a temptation for us to disobey God. It's a temptation for us to doubt God and thus to dishonor him and go the path of person number two. And so what James is going to tell us is how we can triumph over temptations that trials in our life, in lives inevitably bring. Let's do this this morning. Let's go ahead and read through our text. We're going to be in chapter 1 of uh, James, and we're going to read 12 through 17. We're just going to read it through, and then we're going to pick it apart. So if you would read with me this morning. James says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we're going to see this morning, what I hope we can see this morning as we get into the text of James, is three tactics, if you will. I think what we're going to see from this text is three tactics how to triumph over temptations. Specifically, the temptations that we face when we are in the midst of a hot and difficult and painful trial. And so the first tactic that we see in verse 12 is simply this. We need to remember the reward. If you're taking notes, this is tactic number one. We need to remember the reward. And we see this in verse 12. Let's look again at verse 12. James begins, and he kind of uses verse 12 as a transitional verse. James was talking about how to tackle trials, and he's going to summarize his talking about trials in verse 12, and he's going to lead us into temptation into verse 13. And so it's somewhat of a transitional verse, and James, essentially what he does in in verse 12, is he pronounces a blessing. He pronounces a blessing or a reward upon those who endure Those who are steadfast, those who just stick with it and remain faithful to God in the midst of a trial. He pronounces a blessing. Verse 12, blessed is the man. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, Anyone who is familiar with Jesus' teachings know that in the Beatitudes, he starts with this very construction. Blessed is he. Blessed is the man. And James is Jesus' little brother, and so he has a Beatitude of his own. Verse 12, blessed is the man who what? Who receives the blessing? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. He had talked about this earlier. Steadfastness, perseverance, your translation may say. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, what is the reward? What is the blessing? 
When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so the first thing I want us to see is that there is a reward out there for believers. There is a blessing to be had, a blessing to be gained for Christians who endure, who are steadfast in the midst of trials. Remember from last week, this idea of steadfastness or perseverance is the idea of, of, of remaining under pressure. It's the idea of sticking with the trial. Remember the illustration that I used if you were here. It's the idea of the person who is like a watermelon seed that is fresh and gooey uh, and a person sticking their thumb under the watermelon seed, applying pressure to persevere is to be the watermelon seed that does not fly out from under the pressure, but remains under the heavy thumb of the trial. And so James is saying, if you are a believer and you remain steadfast, and if you do all of the things that I told you to do before, if you recognize that God is maturing you, if you stick with it and don't flee, if you pursue joy in the midst of it, there's a blessing. There is a reward. And notice what he says that reward is. He calls it the crown of life. Now, uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, the New Testament writers used the image of a crown. It was taken from those days. They would have uh, games that were similar to Olympic games. You could say they were the Olympic games of the day. And they competed in all sorts of different athletic competitions, much like our Olympics do today. And the victors in any particular sport or event would receive like a laurel wreath. It was a crown. And it was a victor's crown. And it was seen as great reward to the one who won that particular game. And so James is using this image of, of a crown, of the reward of the victor who stands, who stands firm, who is steadfast in the midst of trials. And he calls it the crown of life. I think what he means is the crown, the reward that we receive is life. The reward is life. The crown is life. Now, for the Jewish mind, remember, James is Jewish, and he's speaking to a Jewish Christian audience. The idea of life for the Jew is not just existence. It's not just physically existing and breathing on the earth. The idea of life in the Jewish mind is fullness of life. It's, a, it's, a, it's the highest quality of life that you can have. It's life in right relationship with God, honoring God, uh, life in right relationship with others. Uh, Jesus, I, I think, terms it eternal life. And so what James is talking about is a full kind of life, a rich kind of relationship with God that is promised as a reward to those who endure. J.I. Packer, the great theologian of our time, puts it this way. I think he nails it. He fleshes out what it means for a person to receive the crown of life when he says this. It's often the case, as all the saints know, that fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Son is most vivid and most sweet. And Christian joy is the greatest when the cross is the heaviest. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about enduring, being obedient to God, and knowing that we can have a rich spiritual life. The reward is a right, healthy relationship with God. It's fullness of life. And James says, when you're enduring trials, remember, if you don't want it to become a temptation, remember that it can be a reward. Remember what I'm offering to you, that trials can actually be a source 
of spiritual richness and spiritual life and spiritual growth. Notice an interesting thing that he says also. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So he says there's a person who's going to be like that seed under trial. But notice how he describes that person. Notice what he says at the very end of verse 12. He describes this person which God has promised to who? To those who what? Love. To those who love him. And so he equates the person. This is significant. He equates the Christian who is steadfast under trial, who has joy and is growing in maturity and experiences the crown of full life to the one who loves God. Do you see that? What he's doing is he's saying, he's saying that if you love God, that one indicator, one indication that you love God is how you respond to a trial. Do you see that? How you respond to a trial is one marker of how much you love God. Charles Hodges says it this way. In no circumstances more than in trials does the presence or absence of love for God in a Christian become more apparent. And so application wise, maybe you're facing a trial this morning. Maybe you are in the midst of what James calls a trial. And it, it's, it's on the verge of becoming a temptation. I want to ask you, are you enduring? Are you being steadfast? Are you not trying to flee but asking God, God, how do you want to shape me? How do you want me to become mature in the midst of this? God, how can I experience fullness of life? Is that, is that true of you this morning? Is that, are you, would you say that you have the crown of life as your reward for enduring the trial? Would you say that your spiritual life is better in the midst of this trial than it was before? Or is it worse? Are you, do you have the crown of life? Secondarily, I think all of us would say, well, I love God. I love God. A fellow believer, brother and sister, if you are facing a trial this morning and we all say we love God, does your response to that trial back that up? Does how you're responding to the pain and the suffering that God is allowing to filter through your life, does how you respond indicate that you love God? Because James says that it does. And if you're not responding well, well then what that may indicate is in that moment, you're not loving God like you should. You're loving what God gives. You're loving the good gifts that he gives of peace and prosperity and joy and easiness. But you're not loving God in that moment. And so the first tactic that James gives us to triumph over temptations in the midst of trials, simply to remember that there's a great reward. Remember the reward of rich spiritual life, the crown of life that we can have. And if you think about people who have done this, you know that there's something about their life that is a crown upon their head. And you look at it and you say, man, I want that. I want that. Tactic number two, James moves on into verses 13 and 15. The second tactic I think that we see this morning is simply this, brushing off blaming God. I like to use alliteration here, so bear with me. Brushing off is the best that I could come up with, okay? We need to brush off blaming God. Verses 13 through 15, James makes a transition. He says, not only do we remember the reward, but recognize that every... Every trial that we face is actually a temptation to run from God, to reject God, to disbelieve God, to disobey God. And he says we need to brush off blaming God in the midst of our trial. Let's read the text and hopefully we'll flesh this out a little bit. 
Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And here's the reason. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so James is making a transition. And and in the Greek, it's important to know that the word that James has been using for trial is the same word translated temptation. And so what we see very closely is that a trial can become a temptation just by context. Uh, They're very similar. A trial can become a temptation depending upon the context. And here James says, here is the here is the temptation. Here is here is the uh, what we face when we face a temptation. It's that we can say, God, you've allowed this trial to come into my life. God, maybe you've caused this trial to come into my life. And you know the way that I'm acting. You know the way that I'm responding. You know that I'm bitter. You know that I'm angry. You know that I'm hurt. You know that I'm negative and pessimistic. You know how I'm responding to that trial that you allowed to come into my life. Therefore, it's your fault. That's the logic that James is sharing with us. And he is going to say later, don't be deceived. Don't think that. And so James is addressing this issue that we all have when trials come into our life to say, I'm responding really poorly, and God, it's your fault. You allowed it to come into my life. Notice why he says we can't do that. He says, God cannot be tempted, for God cannot be tempted. And so what he's saying is that there's nothing in the nature of God. When temptation comes and uh, ekes its way towards God, there's nothing in God's nature that looks and says, Oh, that looks, that looks good. I think I might... Entertain that thought. There's nothing in God that lends himself to being tempted or lends itself to sin. And so he says God can't be tempted with evil and therefore he himself tempts no one. If God can't be tempted, well then it logically follows that he is not going to be the source of my temptation and of your temptation. Specifically, of our temptation to run amok in the midst of trial. And so he says, brush off blaming God. Your negative, your poor response as a Christian in the midst of this trial is not God's fault. Well, whose fault is it? Well, notice what he says in verse 14. Essentially, he says, you know, the whole old saying, you point one finger that way and you got what? Four pointing this way. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's your fault. Verse 14. But each person, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. By his own, his own desire. And so what, what James is essentially saying is don't deceive yourselves, brethren. Don't think that your negative response is God's fault because he allowed it to come into your life. You need to look inside yourself. You need to look at what he calls your desires. Notice the image here. James is painting a very vivid picture. Notice the verbs. Each person is lured and enticed. These are full of, these words are full of imagery. The idea of luring describes, it's a fishing image. Any of you fishermen? Okay, a few fishermen. Okay, you like to fish. Uh, I'm not much of a fisherman. I used to go fishing a lot when I was younger with my dad, and I really enjoyed it. Kind of dropped out of it in college, but I'm hoping now that I have a son, maybe I can learn a few things again uh, as far as fishing goes. But the idea of luring, in fact, we have fishing gear called Lures, do we not? Um, he says it's the image of a fish hiding under a rock or hiding in a dark place that is attracted, that is drawn out 
from his hiding place when he sees something that looks good. It's the idea of being lured out, drawn out at something that is shiny and looks good. The other word, being enticed, is, uh, is a word that is actually a hunting term. It's the idea of, well, it's this. It's the idea of baiting a trap. Um, I borrowed this from Ralph. Thanks a lot for letting me borrow this. And uh, I'm pretty familiar with this thing. In fact, I had several months' experience with this being above my office. Uh, many of you know my little fun experience. And poor Lee Carlson, she actually saw the raccoon. I never even saw it, but, um, but I heard it quite a bit. Um, we had a little uh, raccoon infestation several months ago, and uh, so Ralph graciously said, we're going to catch it. And so he gave me this, and it's a trap. Uh, you know, I don't even know how it works, but it's a trap. And what you do is you stick something good in the middle, right, Ralph? Some food. I, I don't know what we use. I forget. What did we use, Ralph? Do you remember? Sweet corn, yeah. We, we stuck something that would be attractive to the animal. And so we stuck it up, and uh, I don't think it ever worked, right? I don't think it ever worked. But we sure tried, you know what I mean? We sure tried. The image here, being enticed, is the image of an animal looking at that which is good, the food in the base, and saying, ooh, that looks pretty good. I'm going to go get some. And so James uses these vivid images of how we respond in the midst of trial, in the midst of temptation, to sin against God. And notice what he says. He says, when we are lured like a fish to the bait, when we are enticed like an animal to the food in the trap, and we take the bait, when, using the fish illustration, when we go out as a fish and we take a bite, we decide to eat of it, notice what he says happens. We take the bait, it looks good, but what we discover is that there's a hook. What we discover is that there's a hook in the bait, and it's going to lead to our deaths. Notice what he says in verse 15. Then desire, our desire to sin and rebel in the midst of trial, when desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. It brings forth death. Again, James uses very vivid imagery of, uh, of a child being conceived, of a child being born, and a child growing up. He's using images that we would uh, be familiar with. And notice what he says in verse 15. When our desire to sin and rebel against God in the midst of temptation, when our desire to sin meets the decision to sin, there's a joining. Like at conception, there's an egg and there's a sperm and it comes together to form a child. He says when desire to sin meets decision to sin, something spiritually is born. And what is born, he says, is a sinful decision. Look at the text. It, it, when, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to something, to sin, to a sinful decision. And so we have desire, decision, they come together and there's a sinful action. But that's not the end. There's a sinful action born instead of a beautiful baby little boy or girl. You have an ugly little sinful decision coming out of the womb, essentially. And what happens? It grows up. It grows up. Like a child, after it's born, grows. Well, notice what James says. In sin, when it is fully grown, when it grows up to maturity, like all of our kids do, when it's fully grown, what does it bring forth? Not a life of fullness like a child. Not fullness of life. It brings forth death. The Bible Knowledge Commentary sums this point up very succinctly. It says this, Just as a right response...
to trial can result in growth to spiritual maturity, so a wrong response will result in decline to abject spiritual poverty. That's what James is saying. Is he saying we need to, number two, brush off blaming God because what is going to happen is it's going to lead to spiritual death. And so we can handle trials one of two ways. Say, God, I want to have joy in the midst of this. How do you want to mature me? I'm going to persevere. And we grow spiritually. Or we can say, God, I don't trust you. I don't believe in you. I'm blaming you. I'm justifying myself here. And what what is born is a spiritual decision. And it leads to spiritual, for a Christian, spiritual death. It leads to lack of joy, lack of satisfaction, and being separated in our relationship from God. So application, a couple of applications here. The first one is this. Don't su- subtly, subtly is the word I'm looking for. We often subtly blame God for our poor response to trial. Now, I don't know too many believers. I don't know too many Christians when they face a trial explicitly say, God, it's your fault that I'm acting this way. God, it's your fault that I'm negative and it's your fault that I'm uh, pessimistic and it's your fault that I'm cranky. I don't know too many believers who explicitly blame God for their actions, but I know a whole heck of a lot of Christians, including this one, who is very subtle. We subtly blame God and we justify our actions. And I think it looks something like this. God, you brought this trial into my life. You allowed it into my life. You're sovereign. Um, And so here's the deal. You brought it. Here's how I'm responding. I have every right, given what has happened to me, to be bitter, to be pessimistic, to be negative, to drink more than I should, to eat more than I should, to yell at my kids, to speak harshly with my spouse. I have every right to stop coming to church and to stop praying and to stop reading my Bible because this happened. And that's what James is saying. He's saying, don't blame God for your poor response to trials. Secondly, not only should we not subtly blame God, but we should identify the bait that lures us the most. James here is specifically speaking about temptations in the midst of trial. I want to broaden that a bit and maybe make a wider application for those of us who may not be in the midst of trial. If you're not, enjoy it. You will be. And uh, so, so take, know that. But maybe you're not. Maybe things are pretty good for you right now. This, this text about the luring into sin it is not only applicable in trials. It's applicable to all of our Christian life. And so what we need to do is identify, I think, the lures that are especially made for us. We need to identify the lures in our life that our sinful flesh and our sinful nature... See if I can do this without hurting myself. I kind of doubt it. Um, is for us. Uh, I did a little bit of reading about lures, and I found out that they make particular lures for particular kind of fish. That makes sense, right? They know the tendencies of fish. Some fish like this, some fish like that. And so they make lures specifically to entice a particular kind of fish. And I thought, boy, that's exactly how our flesh is. That's exactly how our desire is. We each have sinful desires, and uh, we each have desires that are like especially made for us, that entice us to sin. And so what, you know, what, is, what is the lure in your life? Maybe it's the lure of um, 
you know, work has been hard. I'm, I'm off work, um, and uh, I'm going to lie to my spouse. I really want to go uh, have a good time with my buddies. They're going to hang out here or there. I want to go spend some time with them. I get fulfillment from them. I enjoy my relationship with them. And so I'm going to say to my wife, I'm working late because I think... The shiny fish that's dangled before us says, well, these relationships are going to be satisfying. I'm going to enjoy time with my buddies, and that's going to fulfill my relational need. But what we don't know is that the hook, the hook for that lure is that it will devastate our trust with our spouse, and it will widen our relationship with our spouse. Maybe it's that. Um, I'm going to throw this on the ground. I hope I don't step on it. What about, what about this lure? Maybe there's another uh, lure for you. Uh, maybe it's the lure of nagging your husband or wife and being disrespectful to them. And that's, that's your lure. That's the desire swimming in your heart. And uh, the shininess of it says, well, my spouse will respond to this rightly. My spouse is going to change. They're going to actually do what I want them to do if I do it. And that's, that lure looks pretty good. And so you find out that that lure comes with a hook. And the hook is that your husband, most likely, will, uh, will run from you. He will feel disrespected. He will not change because of that. In fact, it will hurt your relationship. And you find out that there is a hook to that lure. Um, young people, uh, maybe it's the lure of um, going beyond your uh, God-given biblical boundaries in your dating relationship. And that lure... It looks pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it's nice and shiny, and uh, it looks like a good meal. You know, it's really enticing, and it looks good, and it offers you that person's going to love me. They're going to be committed to me. Uh, I'm, I'm going to feel wanted and accepted and receive adoration, and it may, it's going to make our relationship better. And it looks pretty good. And so you find out that it, this one has two hooks in particular. Um, it has two hooks, and it will leave you. Um, it will leave you devastated emotionally. It will, it will leave you with scars that will run very deep. And uh, you're going to find out that that's a tough lure to swallow. What's your lure? I could go on and on and on because there are a million different lures in our lives. But we have to ask the question, what is our lure? Which one is made for us? So we've seen a couple tactics. The first tactic in the midst of temptations, specifically in trials, we remember the reward. There is rich spiritual life available if we respond rightly. Secondly, we brush off blaming God. We don't blame God for our poor response. Thirdly, following my alliteration, we grasp that God is good. Finally, we grasp that God is good in verse 16. And I think this is, this goes hand in hand with blaming God. When we start to blame God, not, not only do we blame God, but we our belief that God is inherently good and our belief that God does things for our benefit and to make us like Jesus, our belief that God is reliable and trustworthy in the midst of a trial can be shaken to the core. And so James speaks very plainly as a pastor. Remember, this is like a sermon that he's given. And he says, he says about this, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. This is a pastoral plea. He's like, man, I know. And these were believers who were, were apparently undergoing trial. And he says, just don't believe that lie. Don't believe that, this, that God is not good, that he's not trustworthy, that he's not reliable, that somehow he's changing because your life is changing. Don't be deceived. Verse 17. And then he corrects this. This is what we should think about God in the midst of trial. Every good gift, every good gift, and every perfect gift is from above 
coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Your translation may say shifting shadow. Essentially, God is pictured here as the creator of the heavenly lights. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars. He is the creator. He is the Father of lights. He creates the lights. And what do we know about the lights in our world, and particularly the sun and the shadow that the sun creates? Is it the same all the time? Well, no, our shadow changes during the day. As the day goes forth, our shadow goes from here to here to here to here to here, right? It changes. And this is the image that James is using. He's saying God is the creator of lights. He creates the sun. And I know that the, that the sun shifts and the shadow shifts and it changes. But God is not like that. He says God does not change. He does not shift. No shadow due to change. This is the point, pastorally, that he's trying to make. Stephen Cole says it, Pastor Stephen Cole says it right. This is the point that he's trying to make. James, listen, this is, this is important. James means that when, when, when we experience what seem to be cloudy days or dark nights or wintry seasons, do not make the mistake of thinking that God has changed in his essential goodness towards us. That's the point. And so, again, I speak to those who might be coming out of a season of trial, who might be still in the midst of a trial, a big one or a small one. I want to ask you from a pastor's heart, because I have been there and I know what, I mean, we all have done this. We all ask these questions. We all, God, are you sure you're good? I know you're sovereign and this is come. And I, are you trustworthy? Are you reliable? Are you sure? We ask these questions. Are you asking those questions? It's really, it's really easy for us to say, God is good when we get a raise. <laughs> and it's very easy to say, God is good when our kid makes the right decision. But it's very hard to say, God, you're good when you're, hit, when you're sitting in a hospital bed. And it's very hard to say, God, you're good when you look at your bank statement or your 401k and it's not looking pretty. It's hard to say, God, you're good after you have a blow-up argument with your teenager for the umpteenth time. It's hard to say, God, you're good. In the midst of those things, maybe we can even begin to think, God, are you out to get me? <laughs> I mean, these things run across our minds. And to that, James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He says, don't be deceived into believing that. Remember what I have taught you so far. Remember, I want you to have joy. You can have supernatural joy. Because I'm making you, I'm shaping you, I'm filling your character, I'm making you like Jesus. And... I want to offer the reward of the crown of life, of knowing me better. So he says, do not be deceived by grasping that God is good. We're going to wrap this service up. And we're going to do it like this. I want to share with you a quick story. And then we're going to read a corporate prayer together, much like we did last week, expressing in words uh, that I think resonate in our hearts uh, to God. And we're going to sing for joy. And then we're going to get out of here. But here's the final story. Uh, I was having uh, breakfast with Herb Flinkman, a pastor down at Christian Bible, like I normally do, and he shared with me a prayer request. Um, there is a young couple, maybe my age, around my age, and uh, they had a four-year-old son, and their son's name was Eli. Uh, the, mission, the, the, the man's name is Dustin Stewart, 
I don't know if any of you know the Stewarts. They are missionary. I don't. They're missionaries in China, and they were home on furlough. And to make a long story short, um, uh, they were playing. They were out in the country. There were dirt roads all around them where, where this house that they were staying, and their four-year-old was running and playing, and uh, inadvertently ran out into the midst of a dirt road and was struck by a car. And the four-year-old died instantaneously, and his name was Eli. And uh, I sat uh, reading what his dad, Eli's dad, wrote um, about what he was going to say about his son at his funeral. And I admit that I read the whole thing and weeped just about through all of it. And I want to share with you a few closing comments from this man who I think is a wonderful example of grasping that God is good. Notice what he says. He's wrapping up this. These and many other gifts of joy are Eli's legacy to the world. God used him as an effective tool in our lives and the lives of others for the short time that Eli had with us. He's changed our lives forever. I don't know why God chose to take him away so soon in his life. I'll never know until I can ask God face to face. And this is what I want us to camp on. But I do know that God is always good and always wise. We trust him with our Eli and we know that this is what is best for us and for our Eli. Uh, Friends, brothers and sisters, I would like to think that I could say that. (laughs) I sure would like to think that I could say that. This is what James means in this whole text. This is how we triumph over temptations. We remember the reward. We brush off blaming God. We grasp that he is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that your word speaks so directly to our lives and that you speak clearly into it. Father, I pray for those of us who are hurting. We are in the midst of trials, whether they be big or small, on the grand scale. And we ask that you would help us to respond rightly. Uh, We ask that we would remember that there is great spiritual reward for enduring trial. And that we would know, just not in our minds, but in our lives, the joy of having the wreath and crown of life. Father, I pray that you would keep us from blaming you, from subtly blaming you. I pray that we would look inward at our response in the midst of trials and know that you are God. And that your spirit lives in us if we're believers in Christ. And that we can look very different by your power and by your grace. Father, I pray also that we would, um, we would trust you. We would trust that you're good even when it doesn't seem like it. We would trust that you know what you're doing even when we doubt. Uh, that we would believe you and receive a great reward for that. So, Father, now we ask as we voice this prayer corporately uh, that the words that were written by another would resonate deep in our hearts uh, from us to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's read this together. This is a di- from a diary of private prayer. Now the, guy's gone, uh, the guy's name is John Bailey. So let's just read this together, if you'll follow my lead. Teach me, O oh God, to use all the circumstances of my life today that they may bring forth in me the fruits of holiness rather than the fruits of sin. Let me use disappointment as material for patience. Let me use success as material for thankfulness. Let me use suspense as material for perseverance. Let me use danger as material for courage. Let me use reproach as material for long-suffering. Let me use praise as material for humility. 
Let me use pleasures as material for temperance. Let me use pains as material for endurance. Amen. Musicians, would you come forward and lead us in a song of praise? And we're going to be done.